Hey, good morning, church family. I am so glad you have joined us this morning. It's nice to have a, a sunny Sunday morning. It's been pretty rainy the past few uh, weeks. If you don't know me, my name is Jackson Flieger. I am the student pastor here. Uh, I work with students every week and just love it so much. And speaking of our student ministry, we have one big event coming up this summer, and that is summer camp. We are going to Fuge Camps at Liberty University. I was just talking to a student before the service, and he was like, dude, You've got to tell my parents to bring me to summer camp. So I said, okay, no worries. I will do that for you. So this is your, your sign if you're a parent. You need to sign your student up for summer camp. It's amazing. It's a wonderful place just to get students away from all the craziness of life and to focus on God and his word and just worshiping him. And one fun thing that we do have is we're offering $80 scholarships to the first 15 students that sign up. So we know that this has just been a challenging uh, time with COVID and all that financially and in many other ways. So we wanted to make camp just a little bit easier for you guys. So I've got 15 $80 scholarships to pass out to students, and I would love to use every single one of those. So make sure you sign your students up. You can go to calvaryrally.com forward slash events, but that's, that's my plug for student ministry. So we'll move on. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter one. Uh, if you're new or maybe you haven't been to church in a while, we are in a sermon series called Who's Your One? And really what we're trying to do is challenge every single Christian in this church, in this building, watching online to find one person that you can intentionally build a relationship with for the goal of sharing the gospel with them, to see them come alive in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. So over the past few weeks, we've been challenging to find one person, just one person that you can say, I know this person, I want to build a relationship with them and share the gospel with them. It's been really cool to see outside uh, the, in the hallway, we have a display set up and there's, I think, around 50 uh, white ping pong balls that signifies that there's 50 people that are being prayed for and hopefully will come to faith in Christ by the end of this year. And I'm sure there's many more people watching online that haven't had the opportunity to drop their name in. And I think it's so cool to think that there's that many people that are intentionally being sought after to share the gospel with them and see them come alive. I think far too often as Christians and as churches, we can get uh, too comfortable doing the same thing week after week, and we forget that there's people around us that don't have a relationship with Christ and that don't know him and that they're desperately lost and in need of a savior. And I think uh, we can also forget that it's, it's our mission. It's our call to reach those people. God's put you in their life to reach them. It's a call that every single Christian has weighing upon them. And I'm excited for us as a church to begin to reach out and, and reach our city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're continuing in the Who's Your One series, and we're going to be considering the life of Andrew. Now, if I was to ask many of you, who is Andrew, you might start scratching your head or start Googling, who is Andrew from the Bible? Because he's not really someone that sticks out. There's not a lot of really stories, children's stories, veggie tales, or anything like that that talks about Andrew. He kind of flies under the radar. He's kind of in the background. But it's very interesting. Andrew was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. In fact, he was considered one of the uh, more inner disciples of Jesus Christ. He's considered to have a really close relationship with Jesus. He had 12, but there was four guys that Jesus really loved and had a special bond with, and one of those was Andrew. And so as we learn about Andrew, we really see that he's the brother of Peter. That's probably how you know him. He's Peter, the guy that does all the cool things and sometimes the not really good things. That's who Peter is, but we don't know a lot about Andrew. He's kind of left in the background. We think of Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They're the four in Jesus' inner circle. 
Andrew stands out the least. We just don't really know a lot about him. Uh, the book of Acts tells us about all the things that Peter did. We know that Peter wrote uh, Bibles in the New Testament. We know he preached the Sermon of Pentecost that saved 3,000 people. But then we turn to Andrew, and we don't really know that much. And so you might be wondering, how are you going to preach a sermon on Andrew? Well, don't worry. We'll do that. But it's interesting if you study the Bible, you'll see Andrew's only mentioned nine times. Only nine times this dude comes up, and out of those times, he's really only mentioned in passing. He's never the, the main character in the story. It's never really all about Andrew. He's just kind of in the background, doing his own thing, uh, being faithful to the Lord, as we'll see that. But we don't know a lot about him. But what we do know, uh, we'll study this morning, and we'll look at it. And as we consider his life, what we're going to see is that Andrew valued individual people. He valued insignificant gifts. He served God faithfully, and it's going to be amazing. And we'll see that Andrew really, he touched the soul of one person who went on to touch the souls of thousands. So I would imagine many of us in here will be able to relate to Andrew. We'll be able to uh, kind of say, I don't mind being Andrew. I don't mind being in the background uh, and doing all that. So if you're uh, in First John or John 1, uh, let's go ahead and read verses 35 through 42. It says this, The next day John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, Jesus replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, that's often how Andrew is referred to, Simon Peter's brother. Uh, it's never just Andrew, right? Uh, poor guy, poor guy. It says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, one of the two who heard John and followed him, he first found his own brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus, and when Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. John the Baptist, he was a messenger who came before Jesus Christ who was proclaiming the message that the Messiah had arrived. He was letting everybody know that this Messiah that they were waiting for was finally here in the person of Jesus Christ. He was going before and letting everyone know the promised Messiah has arrived. If you read a few verses before your text, you see John the Baptist declaring, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. You see, for many years, the Jews were waiting for the Messiah. They were hearing Old Testament prophecies that he was going to come and that he was going to save them and, and liberate them from their current conditions. And so they were left for many years with just silence, waiting for this Messiah. And then Jesus shows up and John the Baptist shows up and he begins to let people know that the Messiah is here. It is Jesus. And he's preaching to them, letting them know he is here. He preached about repentance, God's judgment, and, and many other things. We see in verse 29, he tells them this. He says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was letting them know that salvation was here. He was the first one to go around preaching Christ and preaching what he could do for the world, save you from your sins. John the Baptist was telling everybody that he could. And we see in verse 35 that John had his own disciples that were following him and were likely interested in his message. They, they liked the idea that the Messiah was here. So they were 
following John and listening to him closely, but we see John's not interested in having disciples for himself, right? Any good disciple maker doesn't care about people following them. It's all about following Christ. So he begins to push his disciples to follow Christ. And we see that Andrew is one of John the Baptist's disciples. And John is pointing Andrew and the other disciples to Christ. In verse 36, it says, when Jesus was passing by, John said, look, the Lamb of God. John was pointing Andrew and the other disciples to Jesus, saying you need to follow the Lamb of God. And we see that Andrew begins to to follow Jesus around in the sense that he's literally just following him around. And Jesus turns around in verse 38, and it says, When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked, What are you looking for? It's really interesting. These are the first words that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John. The very first words. And many would note that they're very, very significant for you and I today. Because Jesus doesn't ask them, why are you following me? He doesn't turn to Andrew and say, why are you following me? <laughs> why are you following me around? He doesn't say, uh, who are you looking for? He doesn't ask anything like that. He says, what? What are you looking for? And it's because Jesus understood better than anybody else, Andrew was looking for something to satisfy his soul. He was following John the Baptist around, who was preaching about the Messiah because he knew he needed to be satisfied on the inside. He had an internal thirst that he needed to quench, and Jesus knew he was looking for something. Just like all of mankind, Andrew was on the search for something that would give him satisfaction in this life, that would appease those longings inside his soul. And I think we should all take note of this because this is very important. As you think about your one, the name that you've written down and the the person that you've been praying for, just like Andrew, they are searching for eternal satisfaction, whether they realize it or not. They are going through this life trying to fill themselves with something that will satisfy them and, and ease their longings and make them feel like they have a purpose and an identity and a reason to live in this world. Every single person does that, whether they realize it or not. Your one is seeking something, and we know What they should be seeking is Christ. So I would challenge you to do this. Study your one. Begin to take notes on them. Begin to analyze them as you talk with them, as you watch their Facebook posts and all this. Study your one and ask yourself, what is it that they value? What is it that they uh, cherish and that they hold on to? What are they looking for for satisfaction? Try to understand how they view life and what is important to them. And once you do that, you can better understand how to share Christ with them. You can better understand what they think the world revolves around. You can better understand why they wake up in the morning, and then you can show them how Christ is better than whatever they're cherishing or seeking, right? It could be their family and their children, and they're trying to raise them upright, and they feel like if they can just raise a good family, good kids to be good citizens, then they're good, right? Or it could be their marriage or their job or it could be their involvement in a political party or the fact that they are very socially active with different movements and advocating for justice and they feel like that's their purpose in life and that if they just do that, then they'll be satisfied. Whatever it is, Christ can step in and show them that he is better. Study your one and look for ways that you can show them Christ. And we continue to see Andrew is searching for something, and he responds to Jesus with a question. He says, Rabbi, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and you'll see. And we see that uh, Andrew spent the day with Christ. 
That would be amazing. I wish I could have been there. And after spending the day with Christ, Andrew has just encountered the Savior of the world, the promised Messiah. He has just spent the day talking with Jesus Christ. And many would say it was that day in that moment that Andrew got saved. Andrew received Christ in this moment and in this time. He became one of the first disciples of Jesus Christ. And the reaction of Andrew is amazing. Listen to this in verse 41. Read along with me. This is what Andrew does. It says he first found his own brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought Simon to Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas. To go and tell is the natural reaction of anyone who has experienced the Savior of the world, right? To be saved and transformed, to experience Christ, the natural reaction that we should all have is to go and share, right? Andrew has just been saved of his sins. He's met the Savior of the world, and now he has to go and share. And he goes and he shares with his brother the person that he was closest to, the person that he loved dearly, he says, man, you've got to come and meet this Messiah, this man. He is the Christ we've been looking for. The excitement of Andrew, it's so beautiful to see. It's really refreshing to see someone that is excited to share Jesus. After his encounter, after being saved, he has to share the message. He's overflowing with excitement, and he's got to let Peter know. He's got to bring Peter to this Christ. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would give our church that kind of excitement, that kind of joy, that readiness to go out and share. I think the church in America is missing that right now. It's missing brothers and sisters who are ready to share the good news. You see, anytime you and I experience Christ in our, in our day-to-day walk with him, as we read the word, as we pray, as we come to church, as we do this or we do that, anytime we experience Christ, we should be ready to share him. We should be excited to share him because we've just read the, the words of the God of the universe or we just pray to Jesus Christ, Right? We should be excited. And if we aren't, we're doing something wrong. If we don't have an excitement to go out and share with our one, it it doesn't mean that you're not nervous, but if we're not naturally excited, we're not experiencing Christ like we should be. We're not walking with him like we should be. We're not uh, delighting in him like we should be. Because when we meet the Savior of the world, the God of the universe, the natural reaction is to let somebody know May the Spirit of God give us that kind of fire and joy in our walk with Christ like Andrew has. Imagine what would happen in our city, in our nation, to your neighbors and your family members. Imagine how many orange balls would be in our display showing that someone has come to Christ if we would just be excited to share, to let the world know of the good news that we have. John Stott says that Andrew's reaction to meeting Jesus is the classic model for spreading the gospel over the centuries of time. This is how the early church has done it. You get saved by Jesus, and then you have to go tell somebody. And that's why the early church was exploding. Because people couldn't shut up about Jesus because they were so excited and jazzed up to let people know. Gosh, I hope that happens in our church. I hope that happens here. Stott would also say this, talking about Andrew and him bringing Peter to Jesus. He says, here lies 
the secret of extraordinary spread of Christianity in the early centuries. The most sacred duty, the most sacred duty of a new convert was to diffuse among his friends and relatives the immeasurable blessing he had received, which is salvation. Statistics repeatedly demonstrate that while gospel preaching is undoubtedly important, personal witness and friendship continue to be the primary means by which people are brought to Christ. See, church in America, we've gotten so used to one model of it, right? The come on Sunday morning, talk to a few people, come sit down, sing a few songs, listen to someone preach, maybe talk to a few people on our way out, and then we're done, right? And then from Sunday afternoon to Saturday night, we don't really think about church. We don't really maybe even think about Christ. We, we don't do all that. Then we come back next Sunday, and we go through the motions, and we just repeat, and we do the same thing over and over and over and the extent of our gospel witness might be inviting somebody to church, but we've looked at statistics in the previous weeks that say people aren't really even doing that in America. They're not inviting people. That's just not how the gospel spreads. The best way for the gospel to reach our city is not a dynamic preacher or a really good public speaker who can uh, preach a captivating message. No, that's not how the gospel is going to explode in your neighborhoods and in your cities and in your families. No. The gospel will explode when a body of church members like here, like uh, have the fervency of Andrew, and they go out and they invite and they share and they spread the gospel. That's how the church will grow and the kingdom of God will advance through individual members of the body going out, sharing the gospel. That's when we'll see the gospel spread, is when each church member says, I am witness to Christ, and I'm going to go out and do that. If we're dependent on inviting people and getting them in a seat and having them listen to a sermon, and that's the only way we're going to see people evangelize and come to faith in Christ, we will see that happen very, very slowly. But if you go out, and as you're with them every single day, you're working with them, you're coming in contact with them, you're living with them, and you see the gospel explode and something exciting happens, I'm ready for that, and I can't wait for that. You see, Andrew appreciated the value of a single soul. He wasn't known for bringing crowds to Jesus, or he wasn't known for standing on a mountain and and preaching to thousands and thousands of people. That wasn't him. He brought one. One, his brother Peter. He was known for bringing just one. You may not feel like you have the gift of evangelism or the skills to share the gospel well. You may feel like, I've not been a Christian for too long, so I don't know the answers to all the questions that could come up. That's okay. Because Andrew spent one day with Jesus and he was already bringing someone to Christ. You don't need all the experience. You just need the devotion. You need to value that person and bring them to Jesus. The text shows us the value of one. Consider this. Consider this. Say Andrew doesn't have the boldness to, to take Peter to Jesus. Say he doesn't do that. He just goes home and he thinks about it to himself, doesn't get real excited, doesn't share with anybody. Say he does that, which probably many of us, and myself included, have done. What if Peter doesn't get saved? And we know God is sovereign and he could have accomplished his will, but what if? What if Peter doesn't get saved? Who preaches the sermon at Pentecost that's uh, foundational to the start of the church where 3,000 people get saved? What happens to the book of First and Second Peter? What happens to the early church? Who knows? Heaven only knows what would have happened if Pete or Andrew wouldn't have done that one thing, inviting that one person and bringing them to Christ. Just one. And the early church explodes because of Peter's involvement in it. Man, just one person and so much has changed. 
Brothers and sisters, let us have the mindset of Andrew. Let us see the value of individual people and let us strive with boldness and confidence and excitement to bring our one to Christ, to share the gospel with them, to bring them to church. Oh, I can't wait to see that. I, I am so ready for that. I get excited to think what could happen in our church over the next year if those 50 balls out there become salvations and people entering into our church. Imagine things would look so different. I know Pastor David has talked about that. And I can't wait to see that. I pray that that happens. And I hope that even as you sit here in your seat, you're getting excited and you're thinking about your one and how you can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Gosh, let that be true of us. Point number two, we'll keep uh, moving. Andrew saw the value of insignificant gifts. Not only did he see the value of individual people, but he saw the value of insignificant gifts. Uh, we're going to turn to the story of G uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000. And we see Andrew again, so we're touching on two of the, the nine times that he shows up. And he's still in the background on this one. But this is in John 6, 4 through 9. It says this in verse 4. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, Where will we buy bread so that people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each one of them to have a little. Philip says, bro, it's not going to happen. We don't have enough. We, we can't make this happen. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And this amazing story as Jesus is going out and proving his divinity by doing all these miracles, we see that Andrew understood here that although the gift was small, although, although it was just two fish and five loaves of bread, he understood that no gift is insignificant in the hands of Jesus. I think if I was in Andrew's shoes, I probably would have looked over the little boy and I would have said, oh, we don't have anything. Tell him to go home, pack it up, you know, show's over. But Andrew doesn't. He understands that a small gift in the hands of Jesus is something amazing. He knew that Jesus could do the unthinkable with something so small. No gift is insignificant in the hands of Jesus. We see Jesus thinks this in Luke 21, and forgive me for bouncing around in passages, but I want to make a point to you. Jesus says this, he looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He saw a poor widow dropping in only two tiny coins. Jesus said this, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more in than all of them. For all these people put in out, gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all that she had to live on. You see, Jesus doesn't need the biggest or the best to accomplish his mission. Although the widow's gift was small, he doesn't view it as any less than the, the rich people's gifts. In fact, he thinks it's more important. He thinks it's better. It's more valuable to him. Because listen to this. Jesus' ability to use a gift is in no way hindered or enhanced by our ability or by the gift's size. It's the sacrificial faithfulness of the giver, not the size of the gift that is the true measure of the gift's significance. It's not the greatness of the giver, but it's the greatness of the God whom the gift is given to that truly matters. The miracle of the 5,000 illustrates that God, the way that God works. He takes the sacrificial and often seemingly insignificant gifts of people who give faithfully and he multiplies them to accomplish monumental things. 
So as you begin to think about sharing the gospel with your one, you might be overcome with self-doubt, anxiety, worry, fear, saying, I can't do this. How could I ever share with this person? But we have to remember, we must remember this, that no gift is insignificant in the hands of Jesus. So if you give your time, if you give your efforts, your prayers, your mind, your heart, if you give it all into sharing the gospel with them, God can use that. But many of us have never seen a soul come to Christ because of our effort because we don't just try or we don't try. God can do amazing things with your gift no matter how big or how small. You just have to offer it, to lay it at the feet of Jesus. And then we can see the gospel explode, but we have to lay it at his feet. God can do anything. Christ can do anything with your gift. You will be amazed at what he can do with something so small. You say, I've never shared the gospel. I'm not a good speaker. It doesn't matter. It's not your power, right? The salvation of your one is not dependent on your gifts and your abilities and your strengths. The salvation of your one is ultimately dependent on God who is empowering you, right? So the pressure's off you. It's not on your back. I can step up into a pulpit and preach with confidence, not because I'm so good or anything like that, because I know God is empowering me in this moment if I've been reliant upon him. And so as you go forth and you speak with your one and you're doing life with them and you're interacting with them, you can have confidence and boldness. Why? Because God is working. Because you've given your gifts, you've given all that you have, and you said, God, take my time, take my efforts, take my anxieties, take it all and use it. And he will. God wants to save souls. He wants to save your one. Right? This is exciting. I love the story of D.L. Moody's salvation because it illustrates this point beautifully. D.L. Moody is one of the greatest evangelists that the world has ever seen. His ministry impacted thousands of people, and it continues to impact people even after his death. A man named Edward Kimball was the man who led Moody to Christ. He was his Sunday school teacher. Now, I want to read this about Edward. This, uh, Johnny Hunt writes this. He says, Edward went to a Boston shoe store where the 18-year-old Moody was working. He cornered him in the stockroom and introduced him to Christ. Kimball, listen to this, was anything but bold. He was a timid, soft-spoken man. He went to that shoe store frightened, trembling, unaware of whether he would have the courage to confront this young man with the gospel. And Moody, on the other hand, he was crude and illiterate, and Kimball trembled in his boots as he just recalled the incident. Moody had begun to attend a Sunday school class, and, but he was totally untaught and ignorant of the things of the Bible. Moody was going to be no easy person to share the gospel with, right? And this is what Kimball says. These are his words. He says this, I decided to speak to Moody about Christ and about his soul. I started downtown to Holton's shoe store. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go just then during business hours. And I thought maybe my mission might embarrass the boy. That I, when I went, the other clerks would make fun of him and they would ask what I was talking about and they would judge him. Then when I found uh, I had gone, or as, sorry, he says this, while I was pondering over it all, I passed the store without notice. He, he walked right by the store because he was anxious and fearful. Then I found I had gone by the door and I determined to make a dash for it, having it over at once. Listen to this. Kimball found Moody in the stockroom and spoke to him. He says this, limping words. Later he said, I could never remember what I said. Something about Christ and his love, that was all. 
He admitted it was a weak appeal. But, but Moody then and there gave his heart to Christ. Edward Kimball, he was not a great evangelist. He didn't give an elegant gospel presentation. He didn't even have the best gifts to offer. He wasn't even confident when he shared the gospel. He said he was shaking in his boots. But Moody came to Christ. He got saved. He valued one person. He knew that Christ could use him, and he did. And now thousands of people have come to faith in Christ because of D.L. Moody's uh, ministry and how he lived on this earth. Listen to this. Whatever you have to offer, commit it to Christ. Give it to him and watch him do something amazing. Watch him save the soul of your one. Be faithful to God. Present the gospel clearly and watch the Holy Spirit bring about salvation in the life of your one. No gift is insignificant in the hands of Jesus. No gift. No gift. So whatever you have, all your skills, talents, and abilities, give it to Christ and watch him do something amazing. And one last point as we reflect on church history and, and we think about the life of Andrew, I want to look at how his life ended. We don't find this in scripture because like I said, he wasn't a, he wasn't a big shot in the, <laughs> in the Bible. He wasn't uh, really written about a lot. But we, do, we can look at church history and learn a few things about Andrew the disciple. Church history tells us that Andrew took the gospel into Russia and possibly Scotland as well. We know this about Andrew. He was ultimately crucified in southern Greece near Athens. One account says he led a wife of a Roman governor to Christ and it infuriated her husband. Her husband demanded that his wife recant her devotion to Christ and she refused. So the governor, out of anger and hatred, had Andrew crucified. He was lashed to the cross instead of nailed in order to prolong his suffering. Church history tells us that it was an X-shaped cross. Most accounts say that he hung there for two days on the cross, sharing the gospel. Most accounts would also tell us that as he hung there for two days, as people passed by, he was pleading with them to come to Christ. At the end of his life, hanging on a cross for doing nothing but being faithful, and he's pleading with people to come to Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful ending to his life. Seeing his faithfulness continue to the end. I read the passage in Ephesians, verse 6, in chapter 6. It says, Do not work while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. And I think Andrew from what we know in scripture and church history, lived out this verse perfectly, beautifully, maybe not perfectly. But he's only mentioned a handful of times in scripture. He's never lifted up on a pedestal. He's never said, hey, be like Andrew. Do what he does. No, he's just in the background, but yet he works for God faithfully. He brings Peter to Christ. He goes into to Russia and Scotland with the gospel, puts his life on the line. I went to Amazon, I went to Google, I tried to buy a book on Andrew, it's not out there. You're not going to find a huge book talking about all the things that he did. You're not going to hear many sermons preached on him, many children's stories about him. He's not going to go down in history uh, as one of the greatest saints in people's mind. But he served God faithfully to the end and he advanced the kingdom of God. I pray that when I get to the end of my life, 
I don't reflect and say, oh, I did this big thing and that big thing, but I can say, I was faithful like Andrew. I was devoted to Christ. What would happen in our church if we all had the humility, passion, and fire for Christ that Andrew had? Do you get the point of this sermon? I'm pushing you to somewhere to share Christ, to have the same devotion as Andrew, the same passion, the same excitement. What would happen? What would happen in our church? Homer Lindsley refers to Andrew as the inviter because he was always known for just inviting people to Christ, bringing them to Christ. Johnny Hunt would call him the the bringer or the introducer. So I think it'd be fitting to end our time thinking about three ways that we can be an inviter or introducer. What are the the three main ways that we can invite people to Christ? And you may know this, but I want to remind you. The first one would be lifestyle preaching. The way that we live points others to Christ. The way that you and I walk and live and move in this life either opens doors for the gospel or closes doors for the gospel. Just by the way that you act, people will be more uh, receptive of your gospel message. They'll be more willing to hear you. When Christians live differently, when we love in radical ways, when we show mercy and grace and forgiveness in radical ways that are different than the rest of the world, people pay attention and they notice that. When they come into our church gatherings and they see radical community that they can't find anywhere else, they notice that. Our lifestyle and the way that we live can preach the gospel in a way. I was uh, in a class in college on Islam and, and studying the different things about the religion. And my professor, he was a missionary overseas in a Muslim country. And he was talking about the best ways to share the gospel with a Muslim. And he said, it's not to go up to them and tell them that the Quran is, is wrong and just a, not a, a good piece of literature and not a holy book. It's not to tell them that their view of Christ is wrong right off the bat or anything like that. He said, no, 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 don't do that. They won't rece- receive that and they probably won't talk to you after that. He said the best way to share the gospel with a Muslim is to invite them into your home and to love them. To sit around the dinner table and eat with them and get to know them and just be their friend and love them in ways that people don't love them. And he said after you begin to do that, you'll open doors for gospel conversations. You see, that's what we have to do. Lifestyle preaching. Our life can preach the gospel. Can I just say this? I always like to challenge us all, because we all need this. Can we all examine, examine our life and see how we're living? Can we ask ourselves the question, am I opening doors for the gospel or closing doors for the gospel? The way that I'm living, am I loving God and loving my neighbor? Or am I acting like a jerk and closing doors? Am I living a life that points people to God? You see, right now, the church, uh, people my age, from kind of like the 18 to 26 range, the church is losing those people at extraordinary high numbers. They're losing. I've seen some statistics that say uh, about 80 to 70% of high school graduates will leave the church for a number of years, and many of them don't ever come back. We saw that with the millennial generation. Many of them grew up in church, left the church, and they're not coming back. And some people will say it's just because this, this younger generation, they can't stomach the truths of Christianity. And, and that may be true for some. 
But I know, I know plenty of young people that are following Christianity, that are following Christ and, and adhere to the Bible and believe it. I'll offer you what I think. I think many people are not or, or leaving the church, not because they can't stomach the truth of Christianity and they can't understand how the Bible could be true. No, they don't have any problem with that. They're leaving the church because they can't understand why the people who say the Bible is true don't live like it is. Many people leave the church because it's hypocritical. And it's kind of funny because we're all hypocritical. So if you leave somewhere because it's full of hypocrites, you're probably one of them too. But it's one of the main reasons that people leave. In my conversations with people my age, they don't like Christians because they seem like hypocrites, right? We often say one thing and do another. We can't do that. Our life preaches to people. What is it preaching? What are you preaching to those around you? What are you preaching? Are you opening doors or closing them? I pray that all of us will begin to open doors. I'm sure we've all shut a door a time or two in our life, and that's okay. But going forward, I pray that we would open doors. And now, many people love the lifestyle preaching because it's a little bit easier to do than the actually having a conversation and sharing the gospel. I, I've talked to students before, and I'll be like, so are you sharing the gospel with your friends? And they'll just be like, dude, I'm just trying to be different, you know? Just trying to live a good life and just showing the gospel through my actions. And that's good. But to become a Christian, you have to hear the gospel preached which implies that someone has to share the gospel with that person. So we cannot just stay in the lifestyle preaching, saying, oh, I'm being different, I'm doing my job. No, we have to share. So that's where church inviting comes in. Another way to reach your one and to reach the world around us is inviting them into our Christian community here at church, into life groups and, and other forms and fashions. Johnny Hutt points out that Andrew kind of had it easy, right? Because he could grab Peter and take him to Jesus and let Jesus do all the work. We don't have that. We don't have Jesus in the flesh. But Johnny Hunt points out this. We have Jesus' body, the church. So we can invite people to the body of Christ and let them see the body of Christ work and move. Because if our church is acting as it should, when people come in here, they should experience something that they can't experience anywhere else. They should see the body of Christ loving them and wrapping around them, and it should be amazing to them. Let that be said of our church. Hopefully when people come into our body, they see radical Christian love and good gospel preaching, right? So lifestyle preaching, church inviting, and then lastly, sharing the gospel. And I said some of this earlier, I really think if the gospel is going to explode, if we're going to start seeing orange balls dropped in our display out there, if we're going to see new people coming into our church and being baptized, and it's not going to happen the best or the, the best way that it could by just inviting people to church and then letting a pastor preach the gospel to them. The way we will see the gospel explode is each one of us going out and sharing the gospel, living out the Great Commission each and every day. If the only way we're seeing people get saved is by inviting them to church, then we won't see the gospel spread as quickly as it needs to. You see, we need to have a sense of urgency with this. Because we are not promised tomorrow. People die every day. Every single day that goes by, we are one step closer to the return of Jesus Christ. Every day that goes by, your one has one less day to respond to the gospel. This is urgent. It's time sensitive. It's imperative that we share the gospel. 
And so as we look forward to, to Easter and we're inviting people, and I hope that we have a full church and we have to do many, many services because we're all inviting people, we may not get to Easter. Your one may not get to Easter. They need the gospel now. We must have a sense of urgency to share the gospel. And as we close, I just want to end by reading what I told you about Andrew's life, the, the end of his life. I just want to think about this. Church history tells us that it was an X-shaped cross. Most accounts say that he hung on the cross for two days. And while he hung there, he pleaded with people to turn to Jesus Christ. In the final moments of his life, with the few last breaths that he would breathe on earth, Andrew was sharing that Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrected. At the very end of his life, sharing with people, people he didn't even know, pleading with them to come to Christ. If I were to tell you that you had one week left to live, how would your approach to your one change? What would you do differently if you had one week left? Would you wait till Easter or would you call them right after this service? Would you try to get up with them tomorrow and talk with them? Would you begin pleading with God to bring about salvation in their life? I know if I had one week, my approach would radically change. I would be on a mission. I would be searching for people. I know so many people. I could, I could drop so many balls in there of people that I know that are not saved. I'd be knocking on every single door, pleading with them to come to Christ, like Andrew pleaded on the cross for people to come to Christ. Gosh, we're not promised tomorrow. Your one is not promised tomorrow. So let us leave this building seeking to make much of Christ, seeking to preach with our lifestyle and to preach with our words the gospel message that Christ came and was crucified. And I would just say, if you're, you're not a Christian, not to just throw a gospel presentation in on the end, but this is important. You are not promised tomorrow. And so if, if you're here today for whatever reason, maybe you've been coming to church for a while now, just kind of doing the church thing, I would plead with you, come to Christ. Like John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God is here. Christ has come and he has died for you and your sins. And I would plead with you to respond in faith and trust Jesus Christ died for you. That all your sin, he took that penalty on the cross for you. I would plead with you to come to Christ. Plead with you. And my hope is that after the service, you would find me or you would find someone else and we can walk you through what it means to be a Christian. We can be like an Andrew and, and bring you to Christ. You're not promised tomorrow, so I wouldn't wait till then. I wouldn't wait till next week. I wouldn't wait till you get a sign from God or you get things worked out because you may not have that. Come to Christ. Church, let us go out. Let us be the body of Christ. Let us go and tell. Let us be introducers. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, come to you right now. So thankful for your word. There's so much in it that speaks to us, challenges us, convicts us. There's so many people that we can look to in the Bible and see how they live for you and admire them. 
we can look at Andrew and see how he invited people to Christ. Lord, he had such a passion and a devotion to bringing people to you. Let that be said of Calvary Raleigh Church, that we would have passion, excitement, devotion, and boldness as we go out and try to share the gospel with our one. And Lord, I know there's many fears and doubts related to sharing the gospel. Many of our church members may not feel like they're prepared or that they can do it. Lord, show them that they can. Remind us that it's not our power, but it's yours. Lord, we ask that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit so that we can reach our city, so that we can see people come to faith. God, let us see that. Please give us that. We know it can't happen without you. If we are to see a movement begin in our church, God, it will be because you show up and you empower us. Please do that. Please do that. Lord, I know there has to be someone in here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, who if they were to die, they would not go to heaven with you for eternity. No, they would be separated from you. Lord, speak to that person. Lord, work on them. Help them to see that you are what they need. see our city, our neighbors, our families come to Christ. Please let that happen. Please embolden our teenagers to be witnesses in their schools, around their friends. Help our parents to lead their families well and raise their children to become Christians. Help our church members who are in the workforce every day around people, help them to be gospel witnesses. Help the elderly in our church to love their neighbors and their grandkids and their children. And to share Christ. Let our church staff and our deacons and our trustees and our youth leaders and children's workers lead by example. Pray that as we go out this week, we would see souls come to faith in Christ. Please let that happen. Please let that happen. Pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.